Hello and welcome to Stump, Death and Taxes. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about the FTX meltdown and Sam Bankman-Fried, but I'm going to do it a little differently because, yeah, everybody's talking about, you know, the political aspect and trying to get away to the Bahamas, but some of those of us who like to read Victorian novels, like, hmm, man, this reminds us of this novel or that novel. Uh, the one that many people brought up is a novel called The Way We Live Now by Trollope. Yes, I know that's an unfortunate name, but he wrote a lot of books. And one, uh, The Way We Live Now, involves um, this businessman is at the center of it who is a big social climber and gets very high up and then takes a precipitous fall. It sounds very familiar. And um, it's not exactly fraudulent, but it is a precarious situation. And Trollope, of course, based it on a boom and bust uh, society. It's, it's Think of the Gilded Age and Mark Twain. A lot of that was going on in, in the later Victorian period, mid and late Victorian period. Well, I'm more of a Dickens fan. And back in 2014, I had an article published in The Stepping Stone, which is a newsletter of the leadership uh, special interest section of the Society of Actuaries. So rather than, you know, do a precy of that, it's nicely, you know, structured and written, if I say so myself. And it was more specifically edited. So I am just going to read that article and you will see in the two novels, Martin Chuzzlewit and Little Dorrit, there are aspects of the business frauds that occur in those two novels that have some connections to the current meltdown. And no, it's never different, is it? And yes, people will keep getting taken in and yes, it will happen again because greed... <laughs> doesn't change. It will happen again because people want to be fooled. So let me run that recording and then I will have some remarks at the end. Business Classics, Dickens and Business Fraud. If I say Dickens, you may think of grand social drama. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times along with some comic characters with silly names. If I say Dickens in business, you probably will think of Ebenezer Scrooge, the cold-hearted businessman who changes when he gets visited by four ghosts and learns the true meaning of Christmas, thus spawning a whole genre of TV specials. However, Dickens went beyond the psychology of a miser in portraying business and businessmen and businesswomen, though there are fewer of those in his novels. This is hardly surprising, given how much Dickens was a London boy, through and through. The business of the city of London was business writ large, and as Dickens became a prominent man himself, and even before, when he was a parliamentary recorder, he became more familiar with the lifeblood of the city. One issue Dickens knew well was fraud of all types. While he mainly covered social frauds of various sorts, given the more rigid class-based society of Victorian England, he also covered the matter of business fraud, 
both large and small. Scrooge himself was no fraud, just a man who valued the world only in pounds, shillings, and pence. Dickens even wrote of beneficent businessmen other than the post-gross Scrooge, such as the Cherebel brothers of Nicholas Nickleby. He wrote of smaller personal frauds, such as Uriah Heep of David Copperfield, who had been embezzling from his master. In this article, I will look at the two largest business frauds portrayed by Dickens in the novels Martin Chuzzlewit and Little Dorrit, frauds that ring true with events that occurred in Victorian times, and frauds that still occur today. Small con man hits the big time. In Martin Chuzzlewit, we follow the fates and fortunes surrounding the very extensive Chuzzlewit family as many jockey to grasp the riches of the older Mr. Chuzzlewit. This ramshackle novel takes characters far afield to exotic locales like Eden, which is somewhere in a swamp in America. But the most raucous events occur within London itself, especially when we happen upon Mr. Tig Montague. What's that Montague Tig? And his fabulous creation, the Anglo-Bingley Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company. The secretary smiled again, laughed indeed this time, and said, rubbing his nose slyly with one end of the portfolio. It was a capital thought, wasn't it? What was a capital thought, David? Mr. Montague inquired. The Anglo-Bingley, tittered the secretary. The Anglo-Bingley Disinterested Loan and Life Assurance Company is rather a capital concern, I hope, David, said Montague. Capital indeed, cried the secretary with another laugh. In one sense, in the only important one, observed the chairman, which is number one, David. <laughs> what? asked the secretary, bursting into another laugh. What will be the paid-up capital according to the next prospectus? A figure of two and as many aughts after it as the printer can get into the same line, replied his friend. Ha <laughs> ha! The reason for my name confusion above is that when we first meet this character, he is going by the name Montague Tig, a small-time conman who has latched himself onto one of the more disreputable Chuzzlewit outgrowths. When we meet him again, he has switched his names, smartened up his clothing, and now runs an insurance company. An entirely fraudulent insurance company. Tig or Montague, whichever he is, shows up again when a different disreputable Chuzzlewit Jonas, comes to the offices of the Anglo-Bengali, seeking to get a life insurance policy on his new wife without going to the bother of actually letting her know that he is doing it. It seems that actual reputable insurance companies had hassled him over the death of his old father. What is so suspicious about an old man dying, hmm? And we're making a fuss about having her sign the new policies. A disreputable customer for a fraudulent company, Tig slash Montague, realizes he has a victim on a larger scale at hand. To hook his fish, Montague lets Jonas in on the secret of the Anglo-Bengali later in chapter 27. Done, cried Montague. Wait a bit. Take these papers with you and look them over. C, he said, snatching some printed forms from the table. B is a little tradesman. Clerk, person, artist, author any common thing you'll like. Yes, said Jonas, looking greedily over his shoulder. Well, B wants a loan, say 50 or 100 pound, perhaps more, no matter. B proposes self and two securities. B is accepted. 
to securities give a bond. B assures his own life for double the amount and brings two friends' lives also just to patronize the office. <laughs> Is that a good notion? <laughs> Ecaw, that's a capital notion, cried Jonas. But does he really do it? Do it, repeated the chairman. Bees hard up, my good old fellow, and will do anything. Don't you see? It's my idea. <laughs> it does you honor. I'm blessed if it don't, said Jonas. I think it does, replied the chairman. And I'm proud to hear you say so. Bee pays the highest lawful interest. That ain't much, interrupted Jonas. Right, quite right, retorted Tig, and hard it is upon the part of the law that it should be so confoundedly down upon us unfortunate victims when it takes such amazing good interest for itself from all its clients. But charity begins at home and justice begins next door. Well, the law being hard upon us, we're not exactly soft upon B, for besides charging B the regular interest, we get B's premium, and B's friends' premiums, and we charge B for the bond, and whether we accept him or not, we charge B for the inquiries, we keep a man at a pound a week to make him, and we charge B a trifle for the secretary. In short, my good fellow, we stick it into B, uphill and down down, and make a devilish comfortable little property out of him. <laughs> I drive B in point of fact, said Tag, pointing to the cabriolet, and a thoroughbred horse he is. <laughs> Indeed, the Anglo-Bengali is just a fancy Ponzi scheme, with Mr. Montague and his partners skimming a percentage for themselves. However, the fraud runs deeper, as these small tradesmen and their policies bring only dribs and drabs in at a time. Montague wants larger catches and gets Jonas to invest with him. After all, it takes some capital to keep the show running. As Montague notes early on, the Anglo-Bengali had some claims, reducing the company to a grand piano, but turned around and built the pyramid up again to the grand edifice Jonas sees. It turns out later that Montague gets some very useful blackmail material on Jonas after Jonas has been hooked as an investor in the company. This relates to that aged father with the life insurance coverage from the reputable companies. Tig uses this blackmail to leverage Jonas to get another relative hooked in the scheme. Alas, the richest old man of the bunch, old Martin Chuzzlewit, will not be hooked. He is an honest man and cannot be caught the way Jonas has. From Montague's success, we learn some aspects of successful fraud. The need for capital to perpetrate the fraud to begin with. The need for shiny appearances to bolster reputations. The hooking in of other unethical and questionable people and ultimately the danger of doing business with such questionable people. In this case, instead of being ratted out to regulators, Montague is murdered by Jonas. Spoiler alert. These were the days before regulation of insurance. Fraud was perpetrated on both the insurer and insured side. Killing people for insurance proceeds was known then as now. Reputation of the company through service looks has helped now as then, but more then as there was no oversight. Dickens died in 1870, the same year the Life Assurance Companies Act was passed in the UK, the first substantive regulation of life insurance in the UK. So certain aspects of Montague's fraud, such as how thinly capitalized it was, and how it essentially had no reserves, would be more difficult to pass off now in specifics. The Anglo-Bengali was mainly an indictment of the questionableness of insurance companies at his time. 
respectable businessman infects society. The Anglo-Bengali fraud, as large as it was compared to some of the personal monetary shenanigans in other novels, pales in comparison in the next Dickensian fraud, Mr. Myrtle of Little Dorrit. The fraud here is not a single company, but a fraud surrounding a specific man in his pursuits. Myrtle has married a relatively impoverished widow from a family that has salted itself throughout government posts. This provides Myrtle with the social cachet to move in high circles, mixing with members of parliament, aristocrats, and other great men of business and society. His success only continues up and up and up. Myrtle is the man of the hour and everyone wants a piece of the success. Unlike the Anglo-Bengali setup, those entering into investing in Myrtle thinks he's the real deal. Dickens devotes an entire chapter to the Myrtle craze, with one of the characters explaining the deal to another in chapter 13. How so, Mr. Clennam? Panks asked quickly, and with an odd effect of having been from the commencement of the conversation, loaded with the heavy charge, he now fired off. They're right, you know. They don't mean to be, but they're right. Right in Sharon Cavaletto's inclination to speculate with Mr. Myrtle? Perfectly, sir, said Panks. I've gone into it. I've made the calculations. I've worked it. They're safe and genuine. Relieved by having got to this, Mr. Panks took as long a pull as his lungs would permit at his eastern pipe and looked sagaciously and steadily at Clenham while inhaling and exhaling too. In those moments, Mr. Panks began to give out the dangerous infection with which he was laden. It is the manner of communicating these diseases. It is the subtle way in which they go about. Do you mean, my good Panks, asked Clinham emphatically, that you would put that thousand pounds of yours, let us say, for instance, out at this kind of interest? Certainly, said Panks. Already done it, sir. Mr. Panks took another long inhalation, another long exhalation, another long sagacious look at Clinham. I tell you, Mr. Clinham, I've gone into it, said Panks. He's a man of immense resources, enormous capital government influence. They're the best schemes afloat. They're safe. They're certain. This is Dickens, and you know this means what Pank said is completely incorrect. Those high and low caught Myrtle fever, saying to each other it was a sure thing. Panks is dismissive of the broke people who talk Myrtle all the time, though they are unable to invest, but he puts some of his money with Myrtle and convinces Clenham to do the same. That act sends Clenham to a debtor's prison when Myrtle's schemes fail with the man. There is plenty of foreshadowing of the coming Myrtle disaster. Myrtle himself has a vague complaint as he always feels ill and has little appetite. Myrtle may be a complete fraud, but he's not really enjoying it much unlike the gusto of Montague, who most assuredly enjoyed his guns. Ultimately, when all of Myrtle's schemes fall apart, the man also does. He borrows a penknife from his daughter-in-law and kills himself in a local Turkish bathhouse. Myrtle's fraudulent disaster is no work of fictional imagination on Dickens' part, though he had plenty of imagination. In 1855, while Dickens was working on the earliest chapters of Little Dorrit, several banks failed and those in charge were put on trial. In the novel, Dickens reflected the speculation mania that ultimately drove the failure. He also reflected the desire on those burned to find human sacrifices, figuratively, which is how Clinton finds himself on the receiving end of hostility as he goes to debtor's prison. He was an innocent victim of the fraud, believing, like Panks, that this was a sure thing. 
He made an easy target once Myrtle was gone, as Clinton had his own creditors who were collateral victims. An example must be made, even if of dupes, to satisfy public opinion. How quaint. So what? This might seem a cute exercise, looking at the historical frauds and failures related to literature. But who cares? That's almost 200 years ago. We've come so far. But have we? Think of Bernie Madoff, a man who worked his social connections, who hooked in people who believed that he was doing something legitimate, like Myrtle, or those who figured he was corrupt and thought they could also profit, as with Jonas Chuzzlewit, hoping to profit from the Anglo-Bengali. Madoff perpetrated his fraud longer than Montague managed, mainly because he didn't get murdered by a blackmailed partner. Think of Enron, where clever people figured that they knew a surefire way to mint money, but then ran into trouble. Think of subprime mortgages, WorldCom, asset bubbles of one sort or another. The essentials of current frauds may differ in the specific details, but many of the human behaviors behind them remain the same. I've read some very good books that talk explicitly about recent financial disasters. The Big Short by Michael Lewis on the credit meltdown of 2008 a book I reviewed for The Stepping Stone, and No One Would Listen by Harry Markopoulos, which covers his attempts to get the SEC to investigate Madoff. Both of these books are good dissections of those particular disasters, and even include some proposals to prevent the same disaster from happening again. However, the specificity of these books, with their particular fact patterns, may make one look at the issues too narrowly. How do we prevent new frauds and asset bubbles? One may take a technical approach, but at the heart is human nature. How people behave, how people have particular goals, and how some will try to get what they want fraudulently. Many of these frauds are successful due to the perpetrator's own knowledge of human nature. It's hilarious how often we hear, this time it's different. And it turns out people's greed, envy, pride, and pretty much all the mortal sins come into the mix in the same old way. Fiction takes us away from particular concrete facts and asks us to look and think more broadly. If you want to catch the next fraud, don't look at the particular tools necessarily, but how people and societies behave. These two novels of Dickens help give a little piece of that puzzle, and reading more broadly may provide you with more such pieces. Are there any novels that you've read that have given you insight into business dynamics, whether fraudulent or otherwise? Let me know at marypat.campbell at gmail.com. So that was the article back in 2014. Let's get back to 2022 in our current situation and not that article and not Victorian England. Now, of course, the people who put money NFTX are going to be the ones who are surprised. I didn't, well, I didn't deliberately directly put money in FTX, but if I had some exposure through some other investments I had, I wouldn't be surprised either. That sort of thing happens. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, that's it's it's hard for me to be surprised by these. I do like collecting good disaster stories, so here's another one to add to the bin. Um, one of the things that um, and this is something I'm just going to say in passing. Um, I am always very suspicious about these wunderkinds, uh, these supposedly very smart people 
who decide to create their own moral system in this sort of thing. Now, obviously, I'm Roman Catholic, so my moral system is very, very old. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you're going to say, of course, uh, you, you're old and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you have a competing worldview. Yes, I do. Um, that is true. But it is kind of funny. I, I listen to one podcast I do listen to daily is the Bible a day podcast. And, uh, this is father Mike Schmitz and the part you do not have to be religious to read. And I used to, um, to read the Bible. There are certain parts that you're just not going to get if you don't believe in the world system. That's true. But there are parts of it, such as Proverbs and wisdom, but Proverbs specifically, that are not specific to like a Judeo-Christian worldview. And one of the Proverbs that came up recently had to do with, you know, you are messing with trouble if you do stuff like uh, you are like throwing spears if you are messing about with somebody and you do barbs and insults, and then you say, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. This is something that is over 2,000 years old. I mean, I forget when Solomon was. It's over 2,500 years old. Solomon's way beyond that, maybe over 3,000 years old, this book. And when you start reading stuff from like the Book of Wisdom or, uh, or from Proverbs, you will see some of these pieces of advice are extremely old in terms of who you should trust, how you should behave, and none of it's new. And stuff about wisdom and foolishness, you should probably pay attention to that. Uh, you might not believe it when you're young, but once you start to get middle-aged, you look back at that stuff and you're like, oh, yeah, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Um, <laughs> so that people keep falling for this stuff and it is very sad. I, I mean, like when I, I see people doing this in their twenties and part of this is the whole, you know, you want to get rich quick and the fear of missing out. I understand it, but, um, you know, there's a risk and there's a danger. So my only real advice for, you know, these get rich quick things is don't bet your milk money. Um, if you want funny money or a small portion of your money to play with the hot stuff, well, you know, it's gambling, it's speculation, go for it. Um, but don't do it with money that if it all went away, um, you'd be starving. That's just going to be a hard time because sometimes it works out, but from experience, a lot of times, many times it doesn't, and it doesn't even need to be a fraud. Uh, it's just the whole aspect is that it is highly risky. That's why it's, if it was easy, you know, everybody would be doing it. Um, but also the excess gains would be, you know, traded away as it were. So, you know, word to the not so wise, but if they were wise, they wouldn't keep doing it. Oh, well, it's not just being wise. It's, it's, it's just that people are greedy. And people also, it's not just greed, but also people want status and our people have pride. And it's 
basic and it's been around in humanity for thousands tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. We just have had the financial system for people to create these kinds of disasters versus, you know, just murdering each other. So anyway, enjoy your financial disasters when you can, I guess. That's been Stump. Death and Taxes. Talk to you another time. <laughs>